0: This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. The days when Christians could view divorce as a problem for people outside the church ceased to exist a long time ago. These days, the number of single-parent families within churches is growing at a rate two and a half times that of two-parent families. The number of failed marriages within evangelical churches is fast approaching a crisis mark. In spite of this, many evangelicals have never heard sermons that offered Christians a biblical perspective on the issues of divorce and remarriage. Many pastors are doing little or nothing to help strengthen troubled marriages. Even less is done to minister to the hurting spouses and children who have gone through a divorce. Little is done to counsel divorced people who are considering remarriage one of the one of the arguments i 'm going to make before i 'm finished is this: uh, everybody in a position of Christian leadership uh, ought to recognize his or her responsibility to uh, present a message that at the very least indicates where you stand on this divorce and remarriage issue. It wouldn't hurt for a preacher soon after—these people only come when (laughs) I'm— Only come when I'm on tape. Yeah. Um, Early in one's ministry in any church, I want to suggest, I think a preacher, maybe you don't want to devote a whole message to this, but a preacher ought to indicate the conditions under which he will marry, he will perform a marriage ceremony for divorced people. Now, on the Sunday you do that, there may be 50 or 60 people who get up and leave your church, all right? But it's got to be done. People need to know. I will be very frank. Uh, When I was in the ministry, I was a very young fellow, and I wasn't a particularly well-trained young fellow at that, and I performed some marriages that I wish I hadn't performed the people who would have gotten married anyway, but at least I wouldn't have had their blunder on my conscience. Uh, it 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 is incumbent on Christian leaders to not only have a position, a stance on this, but to make that stance public. The emergence of divorce and remarriage is a problem within conservative churches is leading a lot of pastors and a lot of people within those churches to choose sides. It's kind of a split occurring. On the one hand, we have some people who are reacting against the crumbling morality of contemporary society, and they are imposing increasingly tight and absolute prohibitions regarding divorce and remarriage. Now, maybe, maybe, as some people think, that's not bad. But if the leaders of churches like this cannot find a biblical text that justifies divorce or remarriage in some specific case, the church simply forbids the action. Couples that divorce and or remarry contrary to the ruling of these church leaders realize very quickly the wisdom of leaving that fellowship and finding another fellowship. Please note, I'm not necessarily condemning or criticizing that practice I'm simply drawing attention to the fact that there are people there uh, on the one side of of this issue who are putting up uh, a lot of very rigid uh, regulations and rules but while some churches are dealing with these issues in a very rigid way large numbers of Christians in different circles have virtually resigned themselves to expect fellow believers to be divorced on all kinds of less serious grounds. People like this would hardly ever dream of confronting their friends and saying, you are wrong in seeking a divorce, you are sinning against God and your family, and you need to repent. Now, I would suggest that we need a little more of this this last uh, attitude. Uh, There's nothing wrong with going up you. They may cease to be your friend, all right, if you do this, um, but perhaps your relationship would, would terminate anyway. It can often be difficult for pastors and elders to insist on biblical standards on divorce and remarriage in an age in which so many people think that anything can go, anything is permitted. It's a matter of great urgency that Christians think through what the Scripture teaches on the subjects of divorce and remarriage and formulate principles that will guide their thinking and their conduct on these matters. And then after a pastor has formulated his understanding of the biblical principles that apply, he should share them with the church on a regular basis. Uh, our sermons should provide help for troubled marriages you know, with all the video stuff and all the books and all of the special lessons and all of the experienced lecturers out there who would be glad to come to your church and hold a weekend uh, uh, weekend seminar for uh, married couples, there's no excuse for churches ignoring this problem. Preachers should carefully explain the situations within which uh, they will marry divorced people. Now, what I have on the board, and I hope we can remember to get this to uh, the people who are listening to this by tape, I've indicated, first of all, at the top level, the four major options that people within Christendom, actually this wouldn't be limited to Christendom, that people take on divorce these, these days, and I've identified these positions in a very ingenious way. I've called them A, B, C, and D. That just came to me one night in a vision. All right, now, let's look at A and D, the two extreme positions. Way over here, the D position says, uh, is is a view that says, divorce is permissible for any reason whatsoever. Now... This position used to be confined pretty much to people who lived either outside the Christian church entirely or to people who were members of liberal denominations. Openness to this extreme deposition on the part of any church or denomination is a sign of serious moral laxity within that fellowship. Believers within such fellowships ought to be concerned to deal with these problems. There's no excuse for any Christian organization taking uh, an attitude like the D position. Now, position E says divorce is never permissible, whatever the reason. Now, you might wonder whether anybody since... 18th century New England has advocated the A position in the United States, but it was recently uh, uh, the position of a book written by Gordon Wenham, his is the only name that I've written on the board, his co-author was William A. Heth, H-E-T-H, Wenham and Heth, their book was titled um, Jesus and Divorce and was published by Thomas Nelson and Sons back in 1985. It was their argument that uh, divorce is never justifiable, and uh, that that, that extreme view may come as a shock to some of you who are familiar with some of these other texts that we will be looking at in a few moments. Back in 1980, Christianity today Took a poll of American uh, Christians, I guess. I don't. I, I forget the target. No, I guess the, the the poll was simply a Gallup poll taken of all Americans, maybe, uh, and of American clergy. And of the clergy uh, surveyed by the poll, only 10% aligned themselves with this position. Now, remember, that was 12 years ago. Uh, and many of those people may have retired so that the my guess would be that the percentage defending position A would be much less today. Interestingly, back in 1980, the same percentage of the general public aligned themselves with position A. That surprised me. Position B reads divorce is permissible for biblically faithful Christians in a limited number of cases. I am not going to talk anymore about position C, which says divorce is permissible for far more reasons than D, but nonetheless there might be a few reasons that might not justify divorce. I don't really know many people, it seems to me that position C has just about faded from view, Uh, but it's up there just to fill in that big gap in our chart. For the rest of today, I'm going to argue, uh, I'm going to talk about position B. And you'll notice then on my chart, and again, I do hope we can get this chart uh, to the people keeping track of the tape. There are now three subcases under position B. And maybe I better lower the lectern here so that the good students in the front row can see. All right. Now there's nothing terribly original about the rest of this, or about any of this for that matter. Position B ones B B1 one says there's only one circumstance that justifies divorce, and that would be based on a very narrow understanding or reading of Matthew I I that came out wrongly that would be viewed that would be based on an an approach that would take Matthew 5 verses 31 and 32 as the definitive and limiting text in this matter Position B2 would say adulter scripture does justify divorce in the case of adultery Matthew 5 but it also justifies divorce in the case of desertion first corinthians seven fifteen a text that we will look at. So here we have one circumstance and one circumstance only adultery. Here we have two circumstances and two circumstances only adultery and desertion. but then position b three says there may be a small number of extreme circumstances that also justify divorce and that can also be justified on biblical grounds in addition to adultery and desertion. Okay? You got that? Many biblically faithful Christians find themselves convinced that these two exceptions... Adultery, we'll continue to use that translation even though I'm going to correct it a little later on. Adultery and desertion are insufficient to cover the agonizingly complex problems of men and women in their churches. Hence, and here I'm trying to give you a a clearer understanding of the B3 position, there's been an attempt on the part of such people to justify a small, limited, but clearly justifiable number of other circumstances that would provide warrant for divorce. Here is a short list of um, actions, circumstances, that people in the B-3 position have identified as uh, justifications for divorce. Philandering. I don't know what the difference between philandering and adultery is, maybe. alcoholism. Along with the unfortunate things that go with alcoholism—violence, violence, violence. cruelty—I mean, if lots of you know marriages that are f- riddled, riddled with violence and cruelty, sociopathic behavior, uh, psychotic or serious neurotic conditions. What do you do if you marry someone and you discover that they are psychotic, for example? Homosexuality, although that would certainly seem to be covered under marital unfaithfulness, impotence, sociopathic behavior, abandonment, extended imprisonment. Uh, that might be uh, a, a subcase of desertion. The difference between desertion and imprisonment is that in the case of imprisonment, the desertion is not voluntary, right? Incest or abortion without the consent of the husband. Now, listen, that's serious stuff in spite of what the feminists in this country are saying. For a wife to proceed uh, to abort a baby. Without the consent of one's husband, this is serious business. Now, Sam Michaloski argues, and this is in the Encyclopedia of Biblical and Christian Ethics, Sam Michaloski argues that there is no warrant in Scripture to submit to such evils. In some cases, spiritual heroism on the part of a suffering spouse may be redemptive, Maybe redemptive in the sense that it might eventually lead uh, the sinning spouse to repentance. But where redemptive steps prove fruitless, most Christians understand the scriptures to allow merciful escape from such evils. And I uh, must confess that uh, there is a kind of prima facie obligation to sympathize with spouses who suffer in horrible cases like that. Perhaps some of us know advocates of Positions 1 and 2, B1 and B2, who maintain, for example, that a Christian wife has no right to a divorce even if a deranged husband threatens her life or abuses the children or engages in similar acts. This husband may be psychotic. He may be on drugs, he may be an alcoholic, he may regularly abuse the wife, uh, he, may abu- he may be threatening, threatening the children in a sexual way. Uh, surely, some people would say, uh, Christian leaders are remiss if they somehow imply to spouses in cases like that that they have a biblical obligation to keep that marriage together. Such an attitude displays an insensitivity to the threatened or injured parties that certainly looks inconsistent with biblical values. All right, but now we have a problem, see? Listen to my, look at my problem. As I've said, when you take a look at evils such as those we described, there certainly is a prima facie right to leave that kind of harmful situation. But how do we reconcile that prima facie right with these clear texts of Scripture? Matthew 5, 31 again. If a man sets aside his wife for any other reason other than marital unfaithfulness, he causes her to commit adultery. Uh, That was close, wasn't it? I got that close. Okay. The problem, of course, then, is that Scripture does seem to limit divorce to cases of sexual immorality alone, B1, or to the additional ground of desertion, B2. Clearly, some have said, there is need to examine the biblical grounds for divorce more thoroughly. So, in the pursuit of that objective... The rest of my discussion will explore a biblically faithful answer to the following questions. And listen to me here. You can't really do justice to this business until you provide people with an answer to all of these questions. Question one, what is the biblical view of marriage? Question two, what does God think of divorce? What is the biblical view of marriage? What does God think of divorce? Number three, are there any scriptural grounds for divorce? And if so, what are they? The next question, and whether you get the exact wording or not, can a biblical case be made for divorce in other extreme circumstances other than sexual immorality and desertion? And then, what do you do about the remarriage of divorced people? What do you do about the remarriage of divorced people? Question one, then. What is the biblical view of marriage? The necessary starting point for any reflection about divorce should be a proper Christian understanding of marriage. Couples who marry without comprehending what marriage should be can hardly be expected to see why divorce is portrayed the way it is in Scripture. Many people, perhaps most people in American society today, hold a view of marriage that can best be described as utilitarian or pragmatic. I had a newspaper article here, oh here it is, I know it was somewhere. Perhaps the majority of people in America today hold a view of marriage that can best be described as utilitarian or pragmatic. Something has value for a utilitarian if it produces desirable consequences. Something is good for a pragmatist if it works. For people who view marriage in this way, the question of when a marriage should be ended is simple. You end a marriage when it no longer gives the husband or wife what he or she wants from the marriage. When the marriage no longer produces the desired consequences, Or when one of the partners believes that his or her needs can be better met under different circumstances, thoughts turn towards the most convenient ways of breaking the union. Shedding a husband or wife is no different on such a view than trading in an old car for a newer one. If you happen to see something you like better, find a way to dump the old partner." Uh, And I'm I'm looking right now at an article that appeared in the Orlando Sentinel that says uh, basically the same thing. Very interesting. This is Stephen Chapman. He says, Marriage is, among other things, a contract between two people, and when one person violates a contract, the courts normally require him to compensate the person he has hurt. But in these recent days, the contractual, the covenantal aspect of marriage has become totally submerged in American society. Marital breakdown has become the norm, not the extreme. Maybe I'll leave that here in case anybody wants to look at that. Now, while the picture I've just presented may be a bit crude and certainly does not describe all divorces, it is hardly credible to deny that this way of thinking exists in this country Or that many churches look the other way when this sort of thing happens. Too many Americans resist the suggestion that divorce is wrong, that it is caused by sin, that it is displeasing to God, and that the Christian church may find it necessary to discipline people who knowingly violate God's moral demands. One reason, then, why Western society tolerates such a high incidence of divorce is because so many people hold a shallow, utilitarian, unbiblical view of marriage. Now, in contrast to this utilitarian view of marriage, theologian Sam Michalowski explains that the biblical, in the Bible, marriage is a gift of God in creation to the human race, and that monogamous marriage as a bond between two covenanting persons is intended to be permanent. Genesis 2 Michalowski goes on to point out that the Bible does not talk about marriage in any abstract sense, but presents it rather as a unique kind of personal relationship involving deep loving commitment to each other. So, in other words, the ideas of covenant and permanence should be seen as central in the biblical view of marriage. Before one engages in marrying two people... Uh, there ought to be a period of counseling in which young people in particular realize how serious God views this thing that they are about to engage in. A covenant, D.J. Atkinson explains, is a personal relationship within a publicly known structure based on promises given and accepted. The Bible elevates marriage to the highest possible human level by comparing it to the covenants God makes with human beings. You've been studying the Old Testament covenants, uh, the God made with Israel, the God made with the human race. The Bible elevates marriage to that level. It is as serious as the covenants God makes. The The relationship between Jesus Christ and His Church is offered as the model of human relationships within marriage. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the Church and gave His life for her, Ephesians 5.25. Wives are to submit to their husbands as the Church submits to Christ. A covenantal relationship that fits this biblical pattern a relationship pursued by two spirit-filled believers living in accordance with God's revealed word would seem to be in little danger from the scourge of divorce. Now once this biblical view of marriage is understood, it becomes clear that God's ideal regarding marriage is permanence. Have you not read Jesus taught that in the beginning the the creator made the male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Matthew 19:4 through 6. So much for the biblical view of marriage. Now, what does God think of divorce? If you don't know, you, look, you turn to Malachi 2.16. Divorce is clearly serious business. It reflects the fact that sin has broken what should have been an inviolable covenant. Hence, it is no wonder when the prophet Malachi states, quote, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Those who believe that divorce is permissible for any whim or inclination suffer from a faulty understanding of marriage from a defective understanding of God's Word, and from a dangerous misunderstanding of how seriously a holy God takes such matters. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and that requires some interpretation there, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and the second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord." End of quote. Now, we've got to pay some attention to what's going on in Deuteronomy 24. It would be a mistake to regard these words as a divine, as an expression of divine approval of divorce. Rather, as D.J. Atkinson points out, this Old Testament legislation, and here I quote, affords recognition of the fact that marriages are sometimes broken even though divorce is not approved by God. Marriages sometimes fall apart. And so Deuteronomy 24 acknowledges the need of civil legislation for the sake of society. That would be the bill of divorcement. In other words, in Israel, if a man decided to dissolve his marriage... Uh, there was at least a modicum of legal business that he had to go through. He had to go through this Bill of Divorcement. Now, what Atkinson points out is that the Bill of Divorcement actually served to protect the divorced woman and to legislate against cruelty in its own negative way Deuteronomy 24 was seeking to preserve the divine ideal for marriage as far as possible within a sinful world. It was a concession on the part of God to the fallen nature of sinful human beings. Deuteronomy 24 is not a case in which God says, okay, I approve divorce, here are the ways. No. God is rather saying, I know it's going to happen. And since it is going to happen because of sinful, um, because of your sinful human nature, you must at least take these steps to protect the wife. Okay? Now, when we come to the New Testament, the debate over the biblical grounds for divorce centers around the two passages, two passages of Scripture. I, I put Matthew five thirty one thirty two 32 up here, but I guess we'd better turn our attention now to Matthew 19, uh, verses 8 and 9. Here's what Matthew 19 says. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. This is Jesus talking. The reason why Deuteronomy 24 is there is because your hearts are hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, the Greek word that is translated marital unfaithfulness is porneia. We get lots of English words from that, pornography. But this is the word that's used. Keep that in mind, because in a few minutes we will return to this issue and try to understand more clearly what the significance of porneia is. What's important here is this. Under no circumstances does Jesus command the wronged party, in Matthew 19, to seek advice. He simply states that the divorce is permissible. In other words, there is an implication in Matthew 19 that a wronged spouse has the right to choose to forgive the sin, forgive the, the unfaithfulness, and not seek divorce. But what Jesus is saying is, if this, if this wrong has been committed, then no one can condemn the wronged spouse for seeking divorce. The only other text in the, in the New Testament that comes even close to justifying divorce is 1 Corinthians 7.15, which we've already looked at. In 715, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, as we've noted, uh, he refers to a case where an unbelieving spouse deserts the believer. In that case, Paul says, let the deserting spouse go. And he then adds that in such circumstances the believer is no longer bound, which most commentators correctly understand to mean that the deserted spouse is free to divorce. And that's it. That's all the New Testament has to say explicitly That's all the New Testament provides by way of explicit grounds for divorce. And, of course, some people would dispute the Corinthians text. And Gordon Wenham and William Heth dispute the Matthew text. Of course, that is not all that Christian commentators have had to say on this issue. And so now I'm going to turn my attention to the the word porneia and ask Uh, try to clarify in more detail what porneia is, what is this justifying ground for divorce in Matthew 19, and then what is is the meaning of desertion in 1 Corinthians 7.15. What is porneia? It is clear that Jesus permitted divorce in cases where a spouse is guilty of this. It is commonly thought that what Jesus was referring to was adultery. But that seems unlikely. Had that been Jesus' point, if he was specifically stating that adultery, that is, marital unfaithfulness, on the part of a husband, let us say, uh, is the only ground for divorce, he would have used a different word. See, there's a there's a different Greek word that is the, the right word to use if you want to talk about adultery, and that's moikeia. Jesus didn't use moi, moikeia. He used porneia. It seems reasonable to conclude, then, that porneia is a more general term that refers to sexual immorality in general. And that within this general classification, it may refer to a number of specific sins depending on its context. And I take that last quote from the uh, 1991 minutes of the General Assembly of the PCA Church in America. Now, let me illustrate what I'm talking about here. Think of a. let us draw a big circle. And let's let this circle represent the whole class of Acts that would be covered by the word porneia, sexual immorality. If this suggestion is right, what Jesus was doing in Matthew 19 was not limiting justifiable divorce to the one instance of adultery. He was limiting justifiable divorce to a broader number of cases all of which are more specific instances of sexual immorality. Adultery would be only one of those subcases, all right? So what we have is a big circle and then we can draw a lot of smaller circles, and adultery would be one of them, but there would be other instances of porneia which would also justify divorce. Those other instances might include prostitution. That's sexual immorality. Incest. Homosexuality. Unchastity. Now, if this line of thought is right, Matthew 19 is a lot broader than many people would have you believe. Okay? If this line of thinking is correct, we've already begun to expand the list of biblically justifiable grounds for divorce. People think it's adultery and desertion. But it is wider than just the matter of adultery. It would include these other instances of sexual immorality. Adultery in in Israel, in the Old Testament and in Jesus' time, had a more narrow meaning. I'm not sure in the Old Testament homosexuality would have been regarded as a form of adultery. Adultery would would have been defined narrowly as sexual intercourse with a member of the opposite sex who was not one's wife. Okay? So that uh, homosexuality, while clearly condemned in the Old Testament, would not have been regarded as, a, as an instance of adultery, perhaps. Well, but let's, do a little, let's go into this a little more deeply yet. If this line of thinking is correct, the grounds for divorce in Matthew 19.9 turns out to include forms of sexual immorality other than adultery. But now something very interesting emerges. The very same word, porneia, is used in Hosea 1.2. Obviously in the Septuagint, okay, in the Greek translation. Now here's the context in Hosea 1.2. There, God speaks of the spiritual betrayal of Israel as porneia. Israel, which had spiritually turned its back upon Jehovah, was guilty of unfaithfulness, of porneia. The same point is made in the third chapter of Jeremiah, in the Septuagint again. Now, later on today, I'm going to consider the suggestion of some that this new usage of porneia, in the Old Testament Septuagint, opens up the possibility of some interesting new dimensions to Jesus' meaning in Matthew 19.9. Let's turn now to desertion, see if we can understand what that might mean, and then we'll take our break. Then we will desert from each other. Paul's very blunt in 1 Corinthians 7. If the unbelieving spouse deserts a believer, let him go. The marriage is over. Not only is the deserted believer under no obligation to try and stop the divorce, the believer is free to remarry. This is the clear implication of Paul's words. However, there are three different, basically different ways in which this text is approached. And we need to look at these three different ways. Number one, this is approach number one. Some see the text in Corinthians as providing an additional ground for divorce besides the sexual immorality covered in Matthew 19. So some people would say Matthew 19 identifies one ground for divorce, sexual immorality. Paul in 1 Corinthians identifies a, an additional ground. Now look, one implication from that, one, in, one, one possible consequence of that line of thinking might be this. Some people think this proves that Jesus' words in Matthew 19 were never intended as an exhaustive list of the grounds of divorce. All right? Now, I'm not suggesting this. In fact, I don't think I would agree with this, but some people would say once you recognize that there's a second legitimate grounds for divorce, in this case desertion, then clearly... Jesus was never intending to give us such an exclusive list. Jesus was identifying one ground for divorce, but the door was open for other legitimate grounds. You see how that line of thinking can get started. And some of us would be a little uncomfortable once we start down that path. Okay, but I said there were three approaches to 1 Corinthians 7. Approach number two. Others maintain that since Pornea carries the broader meaning of spiritual betrayal, remember that Hosea one verse two situation. Because pornea does carry the broader meaning of spiritual betrayal, the desertion mentioned in 1 Corinthians seven may be viewed as an as a sub instance of pornea. Understood in this broader sense. Right? In other words, approach number one, Paul is giving us a second, different, additional ground for divorce. Approach number two, now wait a minute, this desertion that Paul is talking about is really a sub-instance of, of, of unfaithfulness, because that whole idea of unfaithfulness, spiritual unfaithfulness, is packed into the meaning of porneia. On this reading, then, desertion is not a second or new ground for divorce. It is rather one of several instances of the one basic ground for divorce, which is porneia. Understood in this way, it becomes reasonable to regard such acts as physical abuse, attempted murder, extreme physical or mental cruelty or similar serious violations of the marriage covenant as instances of porneia, as instances that are biblically, as examples, as circumstances that are biblically justifiable grounds for divorce. See how that works? Once porneia, in Matthew 19, comes to mean spiritual or physical unfaithfulness, then you can begin to group all kinds of horrible deeds under or or into that circle. Now you can begin to put mental cruelty or physical cruelty. Here we're talking not just sexual immorality, we're talking about spiritual unfaithfulness, and so you've got um, abuse, attempted murder, and so on. Approach number three. Still other people disagree with both one and two. They agree that pornea may refer to forms of sexual immorality other than adultery. But whatever the full extent of pornea may be, they insist that it must be limited to acts that break the one-flesh union between husband and wife. Now remember, I told you a few minutes ago that I would be looking at an attempt to place restraints on those who might want to expand the meaning of pornea. expand it to the extent that it becomes a kind of very elastic uh, balloon under which all, into which all kinds of things can be stuffed. Now, for, these, for this third group of people, what makes porneia the justification for divorce is because it violates the one-flesh principle. Technically, desertion does not. Okay. Perhaps. It violates the one-flesh principle. Because the offending spouse uh, has a sexual relationship with someone other than that spouse, and that breaks the covenant, that breaks the one-flesh relationship, the union. People who fall into this third group think it is a mistake to open up the meaning of porneia to include spiritual unfaithfulness. Now, it would not be surprising if right now you're beginning to get a headache. All right? You're saying... My goodness, Nash, I used to think this was very simple. There were either the liberals who 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 went ahead and did whatever they wanted to do regardless of what Scripture said, or there were the biblically faithful people who said adultery only or maybe adultery plus desertion, but it's that cut and dried. And all of a sudden, we're beginning to realize that we've got kind of a hermeneutical... Problem on our hands here. Approach one, approach two, approach three. How do we choose among these approaches? My guess let's let's take a vote. All right? I'm gonna and let's start with approach three and work back. If you don't want to raise your hand, whistle or something else, okay? How many of you think of these three approaches to this business of pornea Number three is right. And number three is that uh, the kind of unfaithfulness that Jesus is talking about, the only unfaithfulness that justifies divorce, are physical acts that violate the one flesh union. Anybody? Okay, we've got... Oh, good... Wow, yeah, 25, maybe 25%. Okay. How many think that approach number two makes more sense. Now, what is approach number two? This is the one that understands pornea to include spiritual unfaithfulness, Hosea 1-2. The Old Testament is part of the Bible, am I right about that? Okay. Hosea is in the canon, right? And hence, understood in this way, you can think of acts such as physical abuse, attempted murder, physical and mental cruelty. Etc. cetera, as sub-instances of pornea. How many people? All right, we got, a, I think, a few more people on that. The, the fact that I'm raising my hand here is just an indication of how you're to do it, all right? Not <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean that I am i accept that. Now, the first option, uh, we'll see who's left here. Some see the text as providing an... Okay, according to the first option... 1 Corinthians 15 uh, provides a second ground for divorce in addition to the porneia, uh, which here would be defined in a fairly narrow way. Uh, just those two. Desertion and adultery. How many of you would... Okay, a little slight, slightly fewer than um, the other two options. All right. Now, what you're noticing is... That Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7 refer explicitly to a case where an unbelieving spouse deserts the believing wife. Now, I suppose that would give us a fourth and maybe additional option. Some people would say, yeah, Paul, we do have to take Paul's words seriously in 1 Corinthians 7. But he's talking about a very narrow circumstance where, in the case of that time in the world, Christians, Christian women who find themselves married to cruel, uncaring, unbelieving husbands, uh, if that uh, if that wicked, unbelieving husband deserts the wife, boom, let him go. But should we generalize from that specific instance in the way in which Nash seems to have been generalizing, all right, which is, uh, see, Paul talks only about the believing wife and the unbelieving husband. Would it go? To, would it work the other way? I would say yes. That's that's uh, uh, that's an expansion from the translators. All right, uh, uh, as I understand it. Uh, the Greek Paul is talking only about the unbelieving husband. Well, clearly, what the translators did was they said it would be unfair just to limit that to Paul is clearly saying, "If the unbelieving spouse leaves." but of course, in the context of the Roman Empire, how many women women didn't leave their husbands in that, in that culture, right? So we can, we can understand how that would operate in a cultural setting. All right. So it is the case that one cannot one cannot base the position a position in this matter about a Christian husband and wife where both are believers uh, you can't base that on a strict literal reading of Paul's words The question is can uh, is it is it hermeneutically justifiable to expand Paul's meaning to situations involving two believers, so that disagreement over that would give you a fourth position? Uh, I'll be frank. I think um, uh, I, you know, and feel feel free to disagree. I think Paul's words in First Corinthians seven would justify a believing wife's divorcing and remarrying in the case of desertion on the part of a, quote, believing spouse. And here's the way I would justify that. Any, quote, believing spouse (laughs) who deserts uh, a family um, uh, may have spiritual problems so intense So serious that there may be grounds to question his conversion. Now, I don't know that I want to push that because believers fall and sin for all kinds of reasons. But clearly, that's a serious matter, and clearly, in 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 most cases with which you and I are familiar, I'm not saying all. In most cases with which you and I are familiar. Uh, the the deserting spouse may have been a church member, but either before or after, there's certainly plenty of good reason to doubt the sincerity of his commitment. I'm content introducing you to these options, and uh, you might as well recognize that these are options you're going to meet out there. These are options from which you're going to have to make a selection, and then you uh, you can deliberate about the grounds uh, that finally justify these things. Now, that is, a, that is a, a, a suggestion that's been floating around the room for the last ten minutes. Divorce does not necessarily produce any greater evil than what these people are subjected to right now, and in fact, it can, it can produce, it can prevent a greater evil. If there were any real hope of reconciliation, the greater good of that reunion would rule out divorce, Blomberg suggests. When a relationship has been destroyed, something that's a natural consequence of acts as serious as the ones that we've been talking about, divorce is probably unavoidable. Blomberg summarizes his overall view of divorce and remarriage in this way. He says, God intends all marriages to be permanent, but gives people the freedom to follow or reject His intentions. God permits divorce for adultery or desertion because these sins so undermine the foundation of a marriage that greater pain or evil may result if legal dissolution does not occur. Neither of these sins, however, uniquely destroys a marriage. Restoration always remains the ideal. Every effort to reconcile should be made before the marriage is ended. Equally important is the fact that there should be agreement in all of this from a supportive Christian community to which the person belongs. Now, now Blomberg is inserting something here that we've, we've, we've also been talking about. This Christian's... Christians should not get involved in divorces, divorce action without bringing in the wider supportive community of the church. The fact that so many church communities are incapable of being any help in this situation is, of course, a mark of shame for our churches. But, but ideally, hopefully, um, One can go to a church, an abused wife, for example, can say, look, I'm being abused. At that point, uh, the church will step in. There will be counseling. There may be excommunication. All right, now, Blomberg's admittedly controversial approach finds wider ramifications in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7 than many Christians are willing to accept. Blomberg believes that these two texts, right here, and we really need the Matthew 19 text and the 1 Corinthians 7 text, these two texts leave the door open, in his view, for divorce as a last resort in certain other situations where it may also be the lesser of evils. In other words, Blomberg is moving towards this third B3 position, where there are other legitimate grounds for divorce other than desertion and uh, sexual immorality, and those would be cases where the continuation of the relationship would bring about more evil than good. Divorce is the lesser of the two evils. But even under this somewhat extended set of conditions, Blomberg adds, divorce should never be considered unless all other approaches to healing a broken relationship have been exhausted. Now, this is where some of you express discomfort about this, all right? We've, we've now pointed you to a guy who th- thinks that there are legitimate grounds for divorce other than adult, uh, 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 sexual immorality and desertion because in these extreme cases, divorce would be the lesser of two evils. What would help is if Christians who do differ in these ways would seek to understand the reasons that people holding a different viewpoint uh, is to understand the reasons that people holding a different viewpoint appeal to in their search for a biblical and compassionate position. Now what about remarriage? Because this, you know... More likely, people in Christian service are going to have more personal dealings with people who divorce people who come to them seeking remarriage, then you will, before you know it, you know, these divorces may be filed before anybody has talked to you. These people won't come seeking your counsel until they found somebody that they would like to get married to. This whole business of remarriage. Now here's, here's an observation from Blomberg. See if you agree with it. He says divorce in biblical times virtually always carried with it the the right to remarry. In other words, if if the divorce was justified, then the right to remarry accompanied it. No New Testament text rescinds this permission. Neither partner of a divorced couple in which both have remained celibate, should consider marrying a new spouse unless serious and sustained attempts to reconciliation, either before or after the divorce, have proved fruitless. Those who are already... All right, now let let, let me stop right there. A minute or two ago, we saw how Blomberg seemed to be opening up the doors, a little too widely, perhaps. Now what he's saying is, uh divorced couples, uh, divorced people, should remain celibate, celibate until every effort at reconciliation either before or after the marriage has failed. Now, in some cases, it will be obvious that efforts at reconciliation are doomed, are hopeless from the very start. Obviously, if we're dealing with uh, an alcoholic, someone on drugs, we're dealing with a homosexual, we're dealing with ab- abuse, um, the hope at reconciliation, there, 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 isn't, there, there would not appear to be a great deal of hope for reconciliation. The Bramberg is saying, don't think about remarriage until all hope for reconciliation is doomed. Wouldn't be a bad principle for a preacher to operate with. Then he says those who are already remarried, what about people who go, divorced people, who run off and get remarried without any consideration of these warnings and these restraints, those who are already remarried or sexually involved, should earnestly repent of any unconfessed sin and commit themselves to faithfulness to making their present marriage honor Christ. In other words, if a preacher comes along and uh, you're, you're looking at a situation where people have ignored biblical, ethical principles in this business of remarriage, uh, what you try to do is b- lead people to repent of their sins, recognize their sins, and then commit themselves to making this present marriage as Christ-honoring as possible. Now, let's put that on the table. That's Blomberg. Is that how you'd operate? You get the picture? You've got... Let's say you've got... A couple both divorced maybe they divorced their first spouses because they wanted to get together all right there was we're talking adultery from A to Z on this and now these people are standing in front of you um, what Blamberg is suggesting is, uh, you, as a spiritual leader, you don't compound the problems that may have existed in the past by getting these people to divorce again. Right. What you do is you, you try to provide spiritual counsel and leadership where these people recognize what they have done before God, how they have wronged other people, and how they must repent of their prior acts. And then you try to build them up in their faith and in their marriage. You try to pick them up where they are now. Blamberg's assumption that the right to remarry is presupposed in the New Testament discussions of divorce is not shared by a lot of people. Now, he's certainly correct that the right to remarry was taken for granted in Jewish culture, right? Deuteronomy 24. The question is whether it is right to think that this condition in the culture of the day is presupposed by Jesus and Paul. If, if Jewish culture per- contains the right to remarry, do Jesus and Paul simply accept that assumption? Those who agree with Blomberg as well as those who don't agree, might find it easier to be tolerant of those with whom they disagree if they recognize that any conclusion on this matter involves some extrapolation from the specific statements in Scripture. In other words, no matter what position we hold on this remarriage matter, you're going to be adding something or you're going to be drawing inferences that aren't, aren't drawn from specific statements in Scripture. Whatever conclusion we reach about the broader issue of remarriage, it seems clear that the wronged spouse referred to in Matthew 19.9 does have the right to remarry. The right to remarry is also present in 1 Corinthians 7.15, although, as we've noted earlier, the specific situation that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians is one in which the deserting spouse is an unbeliever. I began this by noting that many Christian leaders, how many Christian leaders fail in their duty to the children and adults in their congregations who are suffering the consequences of troubled or broken marriages. Fortunately, large numbers of churches have begun to recognize the responsibility they have to minister to troubled families, to divorced people, to single parents, and to the children of broken homes. There's also a growing awareness of the urgency of helping young people in high school and college to understand the biblical model of marriage. Our churches should be doing more premarital counseling, which, among other things, should discourage couples from marrying too quickly. Our churches should also be teaching people about the value of a single life. It is obviously God's will that some people not marry, and we should uh, do everything possible to help these people feel whole and complete in their lives. Churches need to do a better job of ministering to singles and helping them with the special problems they encounter. We should also make public the principles we'll utilize when we respond to divorced people who come to us with with remarriage in mind. Every Christian leader should see the urgency of developing counseling skills in these areas. Every church should re-examine what it is doing to minister to individuals threatened by divorce or suffering the consequences of broken marriages. Divorce is seldom the end of one's problems. The often traumatic breakup of a marriage covenant is followed by many new, often unanticipated difficulties. It presents church leaders and compassionate church members with an unparalleled opportunity to befriend, help, and minister to people in need. Well, probably going to be one of the Toughest areas that you deal with. Um, let me say a thing or two about birth control. We uh, we we've begun to recognize that sometimes there are some things that are clearly wrong, or perhaps even clearly right, which. Cannot be traced back in any straight line to any um, any specific passages of Scripture. Now, <clears throat> I would suggest to you that the lack of any clear biblical endorsement for birth control shouldn't be construed too quickly uh, uh, to uh, to teach that. Uh, Forms of um, uh, forms of exercising responsibility and um, choice with regard to the size of one's family is biblically unethical or biblically unjustified. Okay, uh, we must recognize, uh, I would suggest, the cultural situation that prevailed at the time Scripture was written. Uh, uh such that this would not have been this would not have been uh on the front burner of Christian thinking at the time scripture was written because the technology was not there. This is my point. It seems to me that responsible Christians can clearly make their way from certain ethical principles. Two conclusions regarding the justification of the uh, conclusions regarding the justification of birth control in in certain circumstances, and I think those principles would lead us to. I would suggest some of the following conclusions. One is one's motive, one's intention in practicing birth control. Is certainly an important part of the whole ethical picture. Contrast two families, two situations, all right? Family number one, Uh, a family decides to practice birth control in one of the ethically responsible ways. Maybe we should come back and talk about that. IUDs, for example, intrauterine devices highly ethically questionable problematic because this technically speaking is not a form of birth control this is a this is a device that retards uh, the implantation of the zygote to the wall of the uterus it's really a form of abortion uh, so if we if we distinguish between Ethically acceptable and ethically unacceptable forms of birth control. Here we have a family that says, um, uh, that decides that it will delay a family for reasons that are relevant to the health and the well being of the wife. But contrast, maybe the wife's health is questionable. Uh, but contrast that with a a different situation in which a yuppie couple uh, decides, for purely selfish reasons, that they don't want their lives complicated by a brat or two running around uh, the house. Now, clearly, I free I form formulated this in in two radically different ways, but I do want to focus on the role that intention and motive plays in this. If birth control is not a biblically condemned action, and I would suggest that it is not, then we, then we have to pay more attention to the reasons why families uh, choose to space their children or limit the number of children. Um... I would also say this, and I want you to write this down, because I don't care how many things I've said this semester that you disagree with. What I am about to say in the next sentence is absolutely irrefutable. All right? Here it is. Pregnancy is always harder on the woman than it is on the man. There it is. I've come right out and I've said it. Do I get an amen for that? <clears throat> Pregnancy is always harder on the woman than it is on the man. And uh, I think it is, it is easier for a man to take a more casual attitude towards this. Um, now, we, we trust the Lord, all right? We are Calvinists. We believe in the sovereign will of God. But keep this in mind. No informed Calvinist is a fatalist. We believe that God works out His will, but God's will is never achieved apart from the means and continuum. In other words, over the course of a life, Any fertile uh, couple can produce 18 to 20 kids, all right? It's possible. Um, Do you want to do that to your wife, if you're a husband, for example? Uh, Certainly one can leave this matter uh, to the Lord, but it seems to me that one of the ways in which the Lord works out his will is through our own wise careful adoption of the best means to certain ends I guess what I'm I guess what I'm suggesting here is that uh, the scriptural case vis-a-vis birth control uh, does not make this uh, in itself an unethically um, acceptable act Certainly, the motives that some people use to justify certain forms of birth control can get them into questionable behavior. The means of birth control can lead to questionably ethical behavior. I've mentioned the IUD device. Uh, I think responsible parents of uh, couples will study the literature and see what effect other forms of birth control may have vis-à-vis birth defects. Uh, uh, John Davis mentioned some troubling statistics regarding spermicides and strongly counsels couples not to use spermicides, uh, say, within two months of um, uh, planning a pregnancy. There does seem to be some uh, implication of that technique uh, to birth defects. Well, um, when all is said and done, it's also a very private matter, but I I would urge you, uh, and and let me say one other thing. The the whole case of Onan's sin in the Old Testament, uh, there is a disagreement among responsible Christians as to the reason why God slew Onan. Uh, uh, and, and some choose to focus their attention on uh, his particular act. Others think the reason why God punished Onan is because he disobeyed the Lord uh, with regard to the matter of uh, uh, carrying on the progeny of his deceased brother. That was the sin of Onan not the particular mechanism or the act in which he engaged, which could then lead to all kinds of conclusions about other matters. The sin of Onan, the sin for which he was punished, was his refusal to carry out his leverite obligation in bearing up progeny uh, through his uh, uh, dead brother's uh, wife. So, again, we have a highly controversial, highly debatable issue from which I'm not sure specific conclusions can be drawn. We've spent a long time together. We've talked a lot about a a lot of issues. We trust that many of these things will um, provide a foundation for situations in the future where we'll be called on to give the best possible advice to people or give the best possible answer to people who are confused. We're all weary. It's been a long semester. If you think you're weary now, wait till you finish the final exam. All right, let's go. We'll call it a day. The course is over. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.